my name is Gina Davis, and this is my smoke story. My story began on November 6, 1997. Just a minute, please. Go. My story began on November 6, 1997, when my firstborn son, Stephen, was born. I was pregnant at the same time as three of my good friends. Little did we know that the next several years would not be filled with playdates and celebrations of milestones, but with a major heart surgery, followed by one diagnosis after the next. Stephen was born with a rare syndrome called Wildervonk. Although Stephen is almost 20, he functions more like a young child. His physical, intellectual, and psychiatric difficulties have left him in need of constant supervision. Watching my friend's children grow was exciting, but often with a touch of grief. While most of my friends were enjoying their new babies, I was driving to Dallas and Fort Worth several times a week, seeing doctor after doctor, doing test after test, and receiving diagnosis after diagnosis. As Stephen grew, his disabilities became more pronounced, and I began to face the bitter reality that my life would never be normal again. The foreverness of this was, is, overwhelming. I could not find any light at the end of this lifelong tunnel. This was going to be my life. I remember so many times just wishing I could sit in a chair and visit with friends while our kids played. At the time, we didn't know Stephen had autism. He did not know how to play, and physically he needed my constant attention. I wanted to go to public places without stares from the odd sounds that come from a child who is deaf people staring at the pronounced scar down the back of his head from his brain surgery. I was tired of hearing little children ask their moms what is wrong with him. I wanted to go places without the fear of Stephen having a meltdown that could come out of nowhere. I just wanted to be normal. It felt almost impossible to me not to compare my situation with other typical families. I have walked the dark roads of anger, self-pity, jealousy, envy, and selfishness. When the heat was turned up in my life, what came out was not pretty. What I can tell you now after all my years of struggling with comparison is that it is a complete waste of time and energy. It is an emotional drain and it is a joy stealer. I also believe this is one of Satan's craftiest tools to distract the believer from a ministry that is right in front of her. Longing after someone else's life is nothing but smoke. It is pointless. It is meaningless. In John 21, Jesus rebukes Peter for being distracted with John's life. Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, what is that to you? You must follow me. I am responsible to follow Christ, not looking to the right or left, 
but fixing my gaze squarely upon him. Caring for a child with special needs was not in my playbook for how I was going to serve God in my life. I would have chosen a decorating ministry or a cooking and baking ministry, or I would have even been willing to shop for the glory of God. But what he chose for me was the ministry of a broken child. This was how he would be most pleased and glorified in my life, and this was his plan from the beginning, his way of conforming me to the image of his son. In the midst of this trial with Stephen, I had been forced to answer some tough questions. Will I live by the truth I proclaim? Do I really believe that God is good? Do I really believe that he is loving? That everything that comes my way is filtered through the hands of a loving father? Is God truly sovereign? Is he in control of all the details? Can he really provide for me and sustain me through the long days? Can I trust him? Is he faithful? Always? In everything? My answer has been Mark 9.24. Yes, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. The smoke of doubting God is another waste of emotional and mental energy that I don't have time for. I am a firm believer that we live our life based on what we believe about God. I have made a decision to believe him and trust him and get on with it. I can say after almost 20 years that God is not just good. He is gloriously good. I find myself trusting God more fully because he has proven himself faithful over and over again. He continues to provide enough light for the next step, not the next mile, but just enough light for the next step, a lamp unto my feet. I have become less afraid of suffering because I have seen what it has produced in my life and in the life of my family. There are times when caring for Stephen that I feel I might be entertaining an angel. He has brought so much joy and life to our family. His quirky ways are so endearing, and he can dance circles around anybody in this room. He is truly a gift from heaven. And one day, the first sound he will ever hear will be the voice of his God welcoming him home. Cut through that one. <laughs> this hardship is not forever. God told me his grace is sufficient for me, and I believe him. And by that grace, I can walk well, believing and trusting one day at a time. Thank y'all. Thank you, sweet friend. Love you. Love you. 
Okay, I am here this morning, and I'm glad to be here this morning. I'm sad to be here this morning because because um, Chris is sad not to be here. Um, her son, Braden, is on the Baylor um, bicycle racing team, and he had a bit of a crash on Sunday, did an endo over his bike, and had a broken nose, fractured cheek, 17 stitches in his lip. Yesterday, he had surgery to repair um, his left arm, which had three breaks in it, as well as a fractured um, elbow. So, um, she's preoccupied today. Um, they do hope to be dismissed shortly, um, as soon as they get the pain management totally under control. Um, so, I am, so, I am glad to be here, though, and I'm glad, really glad, for the crisp air. I get really lethargic in the summer, and then the crisp air comes. Plus, when there's crisp air, you get to wear your holy coat. Your holy coat covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> now, I want you to think about this. If, if um, Joseph had been a woman, would his coat of many colors not been this long and this full? I'm pretty sure it would. Okay, so the other thing about today is, um, y'all know that la if you were here last year, you know that I wasn't just Becky and Mary wasn't just Mary. We were the right-hand people because it took both of us to contain Chris. But she was, so, so we weren't even Becky and Mary, we were Barry. And this, she, she was definitely the technical side of us. And she very wisely listened to the Lord and stayed home with her family this year. Um, but that just left me, I'm not Barry, I'm just Airy, like Airy Head. And she would, she would tell you, she gave me a card that showed, she would tell you that if I was supposed to send you a text and you didn't get it, it was because I sent it on my garage door opener. So all of that to say, there are not going to be um, any slides or details. So if you miss something that I say today because it's not up on the screen, feel free to ask me about it because I can find it on paper. All right, if you'll open, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to begin with a video. We do have videos. <clears throat> oh, God, thank you for yourself, your holiness. God, teach us how to posture our hearts before your holiness, before you. You are really the only true currency of our hearts and of our lives. Please enrich our relationship with you through your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, short video. Okay. <laughs> so um, we had a homework question asking whether worship was me-centered or God-centered. Um, clearly, this young couple wasn't looking for God, they were looking for what God could do for them, how he could meet their preferences, their time schedule, their everything. Clearly, they had no idea what it would mean to stand before a holy God. Um, Solomon invites us in this chapter, chapter 5, not really even invites us, but um, admonishes us to draw near and listen. That's hard though, isn't it? I mean, I have a hard time having one-to-one um, -one conversation with my friend, flesh and body, facial expressions, 
and, and being quiet till it's my turn to speak. You know, and God, sometimes he's just quiet for like a long time. And then when he speaks, he whispers. Why can't he just get on with it? Well, the key to worship, it turns out, is the intimacy that God longs to have with us. And that can't be rushed. The key to worship is the intimacy that he longs to have for, with us. That idea all by itself is worthy of awe. The God of the universe wants to have an intimate relationship with me. You know, when we're, our kids are little, we teach them, Jesus loves me, this I know, and that's great. But as I've gotten older, it means even more that Jesus knows me, this I love. He really knows me, and he still wants to sit with me, to talk with me, not at me, but with me, to have dialogue with me, to guide me with his loving wisdom. We sometimes think of singing just as, or worship, just as the singing portion of the service. And that certainly is an important and wonderful part of it. But worship includes all of life. We're going to have a night of worship here this coming Sunday night, a whole hour of just worship. Please come and be blessed. But we can go to as many worship services as we want. And if we don't obey God's word, we have a worship problem. Solomon says in verse 2, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at it. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart. God is in heaven and you're on earth. So let your words be few. God repeats this thought in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my thoughts are higher than your thoughts and my ways than your ways. Should we not listen to that God and walk carefully before him? When we come to God with the attitude that we know how to run the world, hashtag control freak, we are speaking what verse 3 calls um, the speech of a fool. Back in the book of Job, after he's lost everything, everything he has, and listened to his friends admonish him, assail him all the way up to chapter 38, he still says to God, to his friends too, but to God, mighty God, far beyond our reach, unsurpassable in power and justice. It is unthinkable that he would treat anyone unfairly. So bow down to him in deep reverence, one and all. If you're wise, you will most certainly worship him. So go back to verse 2. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. So I don't have the feeling that when, when Job, so after all this, Job is, Job is, he has concerns. He has questions about why God has let him go, caused him even, give permission for him to go through all those things. But I don't have the feeling that he is 
um, coming to God with haughtiness or a demanding spirit or anything. Um, but even so, um, when he speaks, um, when God speaks to him, he, out of the storm, by the way, God speaks to him, and he says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you will answer me. So he then proceeded to ask Job 70 questions. Like, where were you when I created the earth? Do you give the strength to the horses? Do you tell the ocean where to stop? And on and on, 67 more. Well, if we skip ahead to verse 7 in our text, we'll see what God's after. It says, for in many dreams and in many words, there's emptiness. Rather, stand in awe of God. Fear him. Have you heard that people say things like, oh, I'll put the fear of God into you. Or, we're going to have a come to Jesus meeting. Well, those things are said like threats. And they're foolish statements. Anyway, nobody can put the fear of God into you except the Holy Spirit. And to meet with Jesus, to have a come to Jesus meeting, is the sweetest, wisest, most tender experience possible. Even if he is chastening you in that meeting with him, it's in love and for our good. And to fear God, we're told, is the beginning of wisdom. I hope you had a lively discussion about that in your groups. And Chris summed it up when she wrote, He desires for us to fear him no matter what he does, no matter what he allows, not to be afraid of him. So when we have a reverential fear for who he is and who we are before him, then he's our security, he's our strength, he's our hope, he's our rock, he's our peace, he's our victory, he's our everything, he's our Abba Father, as well as Almighty God. This is just a little freebie right here, because we talked about this in leaders meeting yesterday. Um, when I can't sleep, I love to alphabetize things. I had to get rid of the house cleaner once, because she un unalphabetized my spices. But nevertheless, so when I cannot fall asleep, I am... Um, I pray, the I pray attributes or names of God alphabetically. So I will thank him for being, even though you are God Almighty, you are still my Abba Father. You are beloved by your Father, and I am beloved by you. You are Christ crucified for me. You are the door. You are everlasting. We, we could go on. Usually I don't get past, like, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but... Anyway, that's just a little freebie. Um, at any rate, this reverential awe has to come first, and then we're in position to receive everything else. All right, I have to share with you one of my, um, a bit from my favorite, one of my favorite books. It's Jill Briscoe, who was here last year and heard her at IF. All right, heads up, she's going to have another absolutely great message at this IF, so get signed up. Um, all right, this is the, really the preface to her book, and the book is called The Deep Place Where Nobody Goes, Conversations with God on the Steps of My Soul. So in the preface, she's, um, she's coming to God, and she's bringing with her all the people that she loves. 
I carry them with me to the deep place where nobody goes. Those I love better than myself. Gifts of grace so precious. I take my deep longings and hopes for my life and theirs to him. He never disappoints me, but is there waiting. Today I'm so thankful. Can you hear it, lover of my soul? I hear it. It's my heartbeat. I know it well. I read its longing. I shape the love beats into prayers. The angels gather everyone so none is lost. Tell me, though I already know, who does your heart beat for today? My heart beats for the man in my life, the one you gave me nearly 50 years ago. I hear you. It's recorded. I will bless him. Hear my heart for our adult children and their spouses. I hear it. You didn't do it all wrong, Jill. I will bless them. And the grandchildren. What can I say? I see them. I bless them. Above all, my God and King, my, hear my heart beat for you. You know me better than I could ever know myself. You see my poor heart seeking to enlarge its boundaries to better love the world you love. Help me to beat my heart into submission whenever it becomes hard or lukewarm. So it learns to die a little bit with sorrow when people need you, Lord, and there's no one there to tell them. Send me, spend me, defend me. Here I hear my heartbeat. I hear it. It's recorded. I will bless you now. I must stay long with you in the cool, deep place where nobody goes, on the steps of my soul by the throne room outside the front door with the ever-wise God. In your presence, on my face, and at your feet, I will know the words to use. Touch my mouth. It is done. It is recorded. So I left his side and climbed the stairs to the world at war with the Lamb, knowing the best thing I can do for those I love is to work at wisdom, fearing God, and laughing at the devil working my head off to see his kingdom come. I want to live for his honor, his smile, his people, and his kingdom work because I love him. That is my heartbeat. And that, friends, is worship. And it's available, she phrases it beautifully, but it's available to all of us anywhere, anytime. God wants to meet with us in that kind of intimacy. Okay, the rest of the chapter, see the slide? No. <laughs> the rest of the chapter, verses uh, 8 to 20, are about riches. So we're going to look at, we are going to have a slide. We're going to look at a famous Renaissance painting called The Moneylender and His Wife. It's by a man named Massis, I believe is how it's pronounced. pronounced. He was from Antwerp, and at that time, um, Antwerp had become a big city of commerce, so there was much money changing, and there was much um, busyness with money. And so um, just take a minute to look at this, and then I'm going to ask you what you see. And you're going to have to talk loudly. What does somebody see? What strikes you? Sharing. I'm sorry, what? Okay, all right. Anything else you, that you think, that you see? 
Yeah, he does look worried, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. <laughs> There is a mirror. We're, thank you so much, Suzanne. We're going to discuss that. You can come back to that at the end of the teaching. But thank you for noticing that. Are they weighing money? They are weighing money. Actually, uh, so he's got that scale. And right now, uh, he's holding a coin and, and determining the value of it. But there is a scale. Now, look at, can you see what she's reading? Do, the, if you can see it, there's a picture of, Mary and baby Joseph. You can barely see it from this angle. So she's obviously sitting there doing maybe what we would call her devotional, but she's sitting, like she, you, she's sharing with her husband, but she's obviously distracted from what she's doing. I mean, yeah, from what she's doing by what he's doing. And um, thank you, Cody. We'll come back to that if you don't mind. Um, but... I think the, art, the artist is asking us to see how easily um, money can pull us, pull even our souls away from God. We're so easily distracted. Part of that is the society in which we live, all the multitasking. I think all of us have um, actually been trained to be ADD. Um, so let's say that you are um, doing your devotional or your Bible study at your computer and suddenly a Pinterest pops up. Now, how likely are you to pay no attention to that? Or might you just, so as to get quickly back to your devotional, pop over to Amazon and buy whatever it was? You know, we are distracted. And um, verse 8 in our lesson is talking specifically about the rich oppressing the poor, but it also applies to things like this as well. Being torn between our genuine love of God and the distractions of this fallen world. Throughout this whole study, the, that phrase, this fallen world, has come to me so many times, and I think it explains so much. So in verse 8 in our chapter, verse 8 tells us not to be surprised about what's happening. That's not excusing the unrighteousness. Solomon's just being re realistic about life in his fallen world as well as in ours. Um, we all know the term affluenza from the Ethan Couch defense, right? Sound familiar? Okay, the, defin the actual definition is a portmanteau. Who knows the word portmanteau? This is, when, this is one of my English teacher things coming up. But a portmanteau is a, uh, it's a suitcase, two-sided suitcase. When you fold it together, the stuff in the middle becomes one stuff. Well, the, the phrase portmanteau word was coined by Lewis Carroll in... Um, in, over the look, or through the looking glass. So listen to this definition. The actual definition of afflu affluenza. A portmanteau of affluence and influenza. A painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, and anxiety resulted from the dogged pursuit of more. I'm going to read that again. A port, affluenza is a portmanteau of affluence and influenza, a painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, and anxiety resulted from the dogged pursuit of more. 
In Ethan Couch's case, it was even referred to as the inability to understand one's consequences because of financial privilege. Can we just agree this is not a good thing? In our humanity, we have made complex what God designed to be peaceful and purposeful and simple. The simplicity, which is Christ, is rarely found among us. It has to be fought for. In its stead is a world of nervous activities which occupy time and energy but can't ever satisfy the longing of our hearts. A core value of the world is more. More money, more fame, more friends, more, more possessions, more activities, more of anything, just more. In his book, Why Everything Matters, Philip Ryken calls this acquisition without satisfaction and satisfaction not guaranteed. If we look ahead just a little bit to chapter 6, um, verse 9 says, Grab whatever you can while you can. Don't assume something better will might turn up. In verse 7, we work to feed our appetites. Meanwhile, our souls go hungry. In the remainder of chapter 5, verses 10 through 20, Solomon sort of debunks, I guess, some of the myths that um, people hold about wealth. If we heed his words... It will help us avoid coming down with a bad case of affluenza. A core value of the world is more. A core value of the Christian is simplicity. Get your flu shot. All right, first myth. Wealth brings satisfaction. Verse 10 says the opposite is actually true. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied. If you remember back in chapter 3, our hearts were designed by our Creator to be satisfied only by God. He sets eternity in our hearts, a longing for Him. Second myth, money solves problems. On the contrary, an increase in wealth usually creates new problems that didn't even exist before. Think of people who win the lottery or who inherit sudden wealth. One of the problems that verse 11 mentions is that other people start showing up to help us spend those new riches. It says when goods increase, they increase that eat them. John Wesley, on the contrary, he was an early preacher and he told his congregation, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. Third myth, wealth brings peace of mind. Actually, it's more likely to keep us awake at night. Think about how many rich or famous people take drugs to sleep, often ending in overdoses, or they take their lives in other ways. They don't have peace of mind. Ecclesiastes 5.12 in the Living Bible says, the man who works hard sleeps well, whether he eats little or much, but the rich must worry and suffer insomnia. Okay, fourthly, myth. Wealth provides security. The castles of old, um, medieval kinds of castles, were fortified residences, usually for royalty, to protect and defend their lands. Well, to protect and defend the castle, they built big um, gatehouses, very large, sometimes up to three stories large. They had lots of um, ammunition in them, weapons, um, guard rooms, little small openings where they could attack against invasion, thus keeping the castle secure. 
And sometimes like a gatehouse was for the castles, many people feel protected by their money. Proverbs 18.11 reads, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Confidence placed in financial blessing can foster, can foster a false sense of security. Unlike wealth, which is so easily lost, there's no circumstance that can shake a foundation built on trusting God. Another song we teach our children that's still valid, the wise man builds his house upon the rock. Verses 13 through 17 talk about a man who hoards his money, then he loses it all in a bad deal and he doesn't have anything left for his son. And verse 17 sums up his life after that point. All the rest of the day of his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Here today, gone tomorrow. Even if the man did have something left for his family, Statistics tell us that 60% of families waste their wealth by the end of the second generation, and by the end of the third, 90% of families have little or nothing left of money received from the grandparents. Did you notice that when Solomon was talking about the meaninglessness of money in like verses 10 through 18, he hardly mentioned God at all? But flip down to verse 18... I'm going to read 18 through 20, and notice how many times he refers to God now. This is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, drink, and to find his satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the abilities to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil... This is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. This would seem to say that whatever enjoyment is found is God-centered. It's always chasing smoke, just like Gina reminded us to worship the gifts rather than the giver. God did give us the gifts, it says, for our enjoyment. But the only way that works is if he's more treasured than the treasures he lavishes upon us. Solomon is teaching us, out of all the wisdom he gained by chasing all the things he couldn't catch, that we must depend on God alone for our joy, not any of our good gifts. I, I am truly so touched by um, Gina's story and by her life. Because she accepted God's gift of Stephen, just as God created him and just as God gave him, she has true joy, and that joy shines as a beacon to lives all around her. Um, what I'm going to tell you right now, I think is, I'm pretty sure it's proof that the Holy Spirit can write on whiteboards. Because um, yesterday in our leaders meeting in the room we were in, 1 Timothy 6-7 was written out. I've added 18 and 19, but I'll read this to you. Pretty sure the Holy Spirit wrote it. Command those who are rich in this present world... Not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. 
In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that truly is life. Okay, Cody, could we look at that one more time? Okay, so thank you, Suzanne. If you can see um, the mirror, like it's facing out by the book, and so obviously it's reflecting something outside the actual scene. And if you look, it's like the window, the frame of a window, but it forms the shape of a cross, doesn't it? And you can't see it very well in this, in this but it's like there's someone reaching out for that cross as if to take hold of it. And maybe Massis um, was thinking of that person as himself, but whether that is true or not, we are invited to reach out for the cross, our only salvation, where Jesus gave his life to pay for our greed and all of our other sins as well. Hold on to Jesus, friends. In him only will you find satisfaction, guaranteed. Let's pray. God, your word is clear that we can't choose you and money as the anchors of our hope. We know that in you vast amounts of peace and joy are available to us. Please, dear Lord, enable us to choose wisely. In the precious name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.